Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to White Goat Radio here at the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Josh Lambert, and I'm here today with Ilan Stavans, Louis Sebring Professor in Latin American and Latino Culture at Amherst College, and the co-creator of Onse at 9.53 a.m., an exhibit that will be opening at the Yiddish Book Center on April 29th. This photonovela exhibit by uh, Stavans and Marcelo Brodsky includes more than 100 visuals that trace the streets of Buenos Aires' Jewish community several hours before a devastating terrorist attack, allowing the visitor to experience firsthand the atrocities and to ponder its labyrinthine twists. So a photonovela, as I understand it, is basically a comic book that uses photographs instead of hand-drawn illustrations. And I wanted to ask you to, to begin by just telling us a little bit about how this project came together. How did you work on it? Did you begin with sketches, with a storyboard, with a text? How do, how do you make a photonovela? It started, uh, obviously, as uh, any intellectual project with an idea, uh, an idea that brought together two artists of uh, different, uh, that use different formats. Uh, Marcelo Brodsky, who is a photographer by trade and, and uh, well-known internationally, um, it, but whose art has been always committed to um, the memory of, ho- of those who disappeared and to chronicling the, the violence that Argentina has been subjected to uh, in the second half of the 20th century and today. And myself, who do what I do through the written and through the oral um, and spoken word. Um, so by bringing, uh, bringing these uh, two sides together, the very first uh, challenge that we faced was what was going to be the story. We knew, both of us, that we wanted to, to give a, a narrative a twist to what had happened on, on that fateful day uh, in July when the explosion took place in, in the barrio of Once in Buenos Aires. And we wanted to do it through fiction because uh, reality has failed us. The, the judicial system in Argentina, the political system, none of them have actually come up with enough of a solution or a closure to this uh, dramatic, catastrophic event. And in some ways, it, had, it has been left to fiction and to the art of, of imagining that, uh, that putting together of the bombing. And that was really our task. So I would say that at the very beginning, it was uh, an agreement that we had the freedom. We had been invited because the other entities in society had failed to visualize this and to verbalize it as well in, in a way that would be thought-provoking, but at the same time responsible to, to, to the actual facts. We did not want to uh, obliterate fiction, uh, uh, history. We wanted to be truthful to, to history, and we wanted to use the tools of fiction in order to be able to dig into history and see, see what had happened. Uh, after that, it was really a matter of putting together a plot, and that was my task. I took about um, maybe a month or two months. And originally, uh, Joshua would be interested in, in finding this out, it was made of three such chapters. Uh, this is only the first one. And each of these chapters dealt with another character that uh, wandered around Onse, either before or immediately after the event. Um, and 
the moment when, when all that was finished, I when all the plot line was finished, I sent it to Marcelo. Uh, he he agreed or disagreed. We polished it. And then we, we began with the production process. And it was at that point that we realized how expensive it would be to put together three chapters. And we decided that maybe only one would be the way to go. And that is what we ended up doing. After that, uh, Marcelo took command of the situation, and he put together a storyboard that will be a part of the exhibit here at the National Yiddish Book Center, where each of the pages of the photonovela is clearly drawn out, uh, what happens in um, the first uh, the first image, the second image, if the entire page is devoted to a single image, or, or th there are two or three that are juxtaposed. Um, he started also visualizing through photographs th of that he had in his own archives and through going on his own to Onse, uh, how the characters would look. He would uh, come back and, and email me different images of Orthodox Jews or of certain people that looked uh, suspiciously or of a certain corner that he wanted to explore, so on and so forth. And once the storyboard was ready, once we had both been able to grasp... Um, visually what the characters would be. We started fundraising, putting together all the logistics. And then in a matter of three or four days, the whole thing was shot in the actual uh, Onse, where, where just a, a couple of blocks away, in, in depending on where the story is, from the AMIA, the Jewish Community Center that was the target of the explosion. Um, professional actors, uh, makeup, um, set design, and it was it was done in a very methodical way. We knew exactly what needed to be done in every single page, and we worked on that pages. We didn't do it actually in a chronological order; simply organized ourselves depending on where where we were, and then we let the spontaneity of the world set in, and there were all sorts of elements of people were, that were just wandering in, in that particular corner or of a certain incident of a, of a child that was running that we thought it might be a good idea to, to bring it in. And in the end, we had, I think, 5,000 or more photographs of which very few ended up being used, but uh, that enabled us to have the, the canvas uh, to be able to draw the colors in much more detail and to s fix the images page by page, um, section by section. It's amazing how much this is a book that was produced in a process similar to how you'd shoot a, a short film or, or, a, or a movie. And I wanted to ask you, because you appear in the book, what the experience of acting for this genre is like. It's not something that, that people have a lot of experience with, but I understand that your father appeared in a, in a couple of photonovelas. But I was wondering, as I, as I looked at the images, whether it's analogous to the kind of acting one would do on film or whether it's a different uh, beast entirely. Uh, to some degree, in uh, older photonovelas I've seen, the style of acting reminds me of old silent film where people have to overemphasize every emotional reaction so that it's clearly visible. That wasn't exactly the impression I got from this, but I wondered when you are appearing as Rabbi Stavshansky, are you were you overemphasizing? Were you sort of shouting or were you just having a natural conversation and hoping that the photographer would catch it? It was much more the latter than the former. Uh, if my father had... Uh perfected, if that word is, is acceptable here, uh, the caricature 
as a form of acting in in the earlier fotonovelas, the fotonovelas that really go to a much broader audience. I we wanted this to be much more natural, and with digital photography, you can afford to take as many photographs as as you want. So sometimes um, I would simply be performing a particular scene or a dialogue, and Marcelo be, would be shooting around me or uh, shooting around the other the other characters. Uh, dozens, uh, hundreds of photographs, and then he would delete the ones that did not work and, and keep the ones that worked. I think that the technology today has has uh, facilitated a project like this enormously. Just going back to the, to the earlier answer, uh, without him having sent me everything by email, without the possibility of, of, of uh, researching on Google uh, images that he would send me a link to, and so on and so forth. I think this process would have taken a year, maybe two years. As as it happened, it was probably six months altogether, eight months. And exaggeration was a, what we wanted to avoid. What we wanted to emphasize is kind of a natural, spontaneous approach. And we were much more um, conscious, aware, that this was an instrument that has aesthetic value uh, first, and it is also an entertainment second. We wanted really the artistic side to be to be at the forefront. And as as the both of us are really politically committed in one way or another through our uh, careers, it it needed to have that political dimension. And if it was too much of a cartoon, we felt that would undermine the ultimate message. And I can I can feel that balance in the in the plot line, which um, verges from elements of thriller a, at some moments, but where that doesn't take center stage right. uh, in, in the book. Um, it, it seems to me I'm fascinated with what you're saying, but the way that technology enables this, and it's very funny because the photo novella. Uh, I think part of the impulse of this project was to take a, a genre that's fallen into disuse for the most part, or that certainly isn't as prominent as it may have been a, at one point. Um, and yet the the technology makes it very, very much available. And at the same time, it's a strange moment for the photo novella, it seems to me, because uh, at least in the American context, which is very different from uh, Latin American uses of the photo novella or, or European ones, um, the 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 this style of book uh, was mostly sort of an advertising gimmick for movies or just a just a, a sort of a, a way of of putting together a story that wasn't taken very seriously. But now we have such respect for gr the graphic novel for uh, stories told in comic books. They can be critically acclaimed. They can be bestsellers. They can be mm -hmm. sort of taken very seriously. It seems that there's. Um, a real a real possibility for this genre actually to have some uh, traction to it or some um, uh, to open up uh, new aesthetic opportunities. But I wonder if there are ways in which I, I'd be curious for you to speak about ways in which the using photography to tell stories as opposed to sort of hand drawn illustrations um, to tell this kind of story. Yeah. Uh, how that how that changes the project for you. Changes it uh, dramatically. Let me let me let me go back to this dramatic side uh, after I say one or two things about your first part. Uh, the first part of your question, no doubt, it is uh, a crucial moment. Uh, we have all of us 
the potential of becoming photographers. And in fact, we're all photographers already by virtue of the fact that we have a cell phone uh, that can take photographs and takes photographs all the time. So we are trafficking with images back and forth. Our life is about the visuals, is about how we click and capture memory. And that memory is, um, is sent to somebody else. And that becomes a recollection much faster than whatever could have been done in an earlier time. The, the, mul the multiplication of photographs also becomes a narrative on its own form. If you look at all the images that you have on your cell phone, in and of itself, that's a story. The story of where you've been, the story of who you met, and the story of the moments that you have chosen to keep. So it, it doesn't have any dialogue, but the dialogue is already going on in your mind. And I, th I find that extraordinarily juicy as an artist. I also, because I grew up in Latin America where this uh, fotonovela types you could buy in every street corner, in every newsstand, they were produced for the masses, they dealt with Gothic cryptic, uh, creepy stories, you know, the secretary that, w that is murdered or, or the maid that, that becomes pregnant, mostly in black and white. We, we are of a generation that is restless when it comes to pop culture, and it, it erases the frontier between the highbrow and the pop. And this is what I wanted to experiment with, the idea that... Uh, a form that is used for publicity purposes or that is used in Latin America by the church, for instance, to go against abortion or by the government in order to reduce uh, the nuclear family can also have a, a very different approach when, when artists take it. So I, I, I find it delicious and deliciously provocative. At the same time, I am in the United States and um, whatever that means because we're so transnational, we're kind of going back and forth all the time. And uh, and it is in this context that the idea began, and it is in this context where the graphic novel has really taken hold. I, I have, I'm a big reader of graphic novels. I have done my own share of, of graphic novels, and I love the fact that the, the visual and the word come together with us in a way that is not, uh, is not for Sunday morning cartoons alone, or is not only for nerdy kids who can't really read a, a a serious Tolstoy or Dostoevsky novel. So, so um, there is much to say about the potential of a form like this, and there's much more to say about the potential of technology in general to tell narrative in a way that we are just beginning to, to imagine uh, every artifact that we have from, from a from from the the internet to the cell phone to other devices in and of itself is an instrument to create and uh, and to create good provocative and lasting art and I think the point you make about how we all carry around a graphic novel of our lives in our pocket and the photos on our cell phone is incredible and it's also amazing to think that we have now a, we have in internalize this language of storytelling through our exposure to comics whereby you can add in captions and narrations and sound effects and it's just immediately readable it's it's completely natural to read through Absolutely. a visual narrative in that yeah. way um i want to ask you a little bit about the as you say the political content of this 
Um, and uh, you're going to have to excuse that uh, I don't really speak Spanish, and so I'm translating, but probably uh, making at least one or two mistakes. But I think anachronistically, there's a line in this in this book uh, in which the protagonist uh, muses that every country has its 9/11, the key moment, the wound in which it recognizes its vulnerability before the world. And I'm curious for you to speak about the the 1994 bombing in Buenos Aires and how you think of it analogously or not analogously to 9/11 or to other kinds of national traumas. Why why particularly this 1994 bombing uh, for the the purposes of this book? The whole the whole um, the whole perspective of how this story tells itself it came to me after putting together the initial plot and then just by serendipity having to read to reread a short story by Julio Cortázar the terrific Argentine short story writer and novelist the author of Hopscotch and Blow Up and and, and other first-rate books, um, that is called, um, indeed, Blow Up. In Spanish, it's called Las Babas del Diablo. And it's the story of um, a photographer that is wandering around, and he himself doesn't recognize that he's a witness to a crime until after the crime has been committed. And by becoming a witness to a crime, he realizes that his naive and very experimental approach to photography has now acquired a very different connotation. His camera is now uh, in between the the possibility of somebody escaping um, the responsibility of that crime and him using it for a higher purpose. Um, th- that incident was was decisive in my thinking that if there was going to be a narrative voice here, it was going to be the camera that was going to tell the story. And of course, a camera can't speak, so it is the photographer uh, in lieu of the camera that is telling us the story from the present tense to the past and, and, and recreating what took place in 1994. But a second crucial moment took place that, uh, that changed my perspective. I knew that the neighborhood of Onse uh, was named Onse, and I thought that it must be some sort of a shortened version of a name or maybe a, a nickname for the neighborhood. Um, but nothing beyond that. Once in Spanish means 11. And um, th- that neighborhood in Buenos Aires is the place where all immigrants arrive, Koreans and Italians and, and uh, Albanians and Jews. And they have coexisted in a way not exactly like, but not too far from uh, the model of the Lower East Side. Um, and in doing my research, uh, I realized that the full name of Once, of the neighborhood, is Once de Septiembre, September 11. It was kind of serendipity that it was on September 11 that the big trauma that made this country, the United States, uh, kind of lose its virginity uh, in the world at large, ceased to be the almighty power, was also indirectly and in narrative in a narrative way, the center of the place where uh, uh, some 50 years prior, or more or less, this neighborhood in Buenos Aires was uh, brought to center stage in the world at large. It seems to me that that at that particular point, Argentina stopped being a Latin American country and became a country that is contemporaneous with the rest of the world. And that that neighborhood no longer was a neighborhood in Argentina. It was a neighborhood that belongs to all of us. And furthermore, that um, 
that every country that has its its uh, its arrival to the world has a moment of uh, of fracture and of terrible pain um, where all sorts of forces converge. And clearly, being from the United States or having lived in the United States, the perspective of the anachronistic present was connected to the past. But uh, it's September 11, you know, just an, an, another element here. That was the day when Augusto Pinochet brought down the Salvador Allende regime in Chile in the it, uh, September 11 in Chile is known as the the dark day the day where democracy perished so i don't know just the way that in Judaism there's always a similar day that refers to the destruction of the first the second temple and the ongoing pain that we always have uh, connected with our our center i think it happens also in in the modern world the coincidence of dates hmm. and and there's a way in which i think the novel picks up on coincidences and visual echoes and 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 plays with that and it's it it is provocative in that in that way that makes you want to to, to grapple with the story. I wanted to ask you finally um, about the place of Yiddish uh, in this narrative because it pops up in a few different places. We have a few characters speaking Yiddish to one another, and then in a very arresting scene, um, a, a dead bird wrapped up in a Yiddish newspaper. And I wanted to ask you to speak a little bit about the place of uh, of Yiddish in in Buenos Aires and in in uh, El Once. Um, you know, I, there's there is quite a long history, a rich history of Yiddish speaking Jews in Argentina. But I'm sort of curious about does. To what degree does Yiddish persist as a as an important language in uh, modern and contemporary Buenos Aires? And and how what what drove you to sort of bring Yiddish into this story as a as a talisman or as a as a as a symbol? It's a very shrewd and and, and uh, astute question, and and I I thank you for it. I thank you because um, when one is an interviewee and not an interviewer, one hopes that the questions will be uh, different and provocative and that they will look at a text in a way that you see but not always see in the, in the, in, and, and you have done that. Um, the, the Jewish immigration to Argentina was a Yiddish immigration the way, the way it was the Ashkenazi immigration to the United States, uh, mostly from the Pale of Settlement, mostly from Stedlach in different parts of Eastern Europe, mostly uh, endorsed uh, fi financially by uh, major philanthropic organizations or individuals like the Baron Maurice de Hirsch or the Alliance Israelite Universelle. Um, Yiddish was the transitional language, the one that the Jews left that old country, it wasn't Polish or it wasn't Russian or it wasn't Hungarian. It was Yiddish, it was Yiddish the, the lingua franca with which they could all communicate. And upon arriving, the language that made them feel at home before Argentina was a home, the way in the United States Yiddish was also a, a kind of buffer before the shock of having to learn the, the new language. Yiddish lasted in Argentina longer as a let's call it a transitive, uh, an enduring language than it did in the United States because of the pressure here to assimilate and because of the function of English in the public schools. In Latin America, particularly in Argentina, Jews first started in the countryside in different communes that were 
kind of mimicking the pattern of the, the shtetl in Eastern Europe, um, Moisesville and others, uh, that were really in the Pampas. And Jews were first exposed in that context to gauchos and to rural uh, activity. And only after 10, 15, 20 years, sometimes after a generation, they moved to the urban centers, particularly to Buenos Aires. And they moved with Yiddish. Yiddish remained the language of communication for two or three generations, whereas in the United States, by the second generation, was already being lost. Uh, Buenos Aires was a center of literary production of, of, of astonishing power, uh, judging by the amount of books that were coming out, and also by the fact that... Um, there was a sense that Europe was coming to an end, and Buenos Aires took the responsibility of saying, well, if books can no longer be published in Warsaw or in Vilna or in other parts of, of Eastern Europe, Argentina can take that task, sometimes haphazardly, sometimes the, the translations into Yiddish of different, or the publications are, are not of the standard that one would like. But nonetheless, it was Yiddish, and Yiddish uh, became um, a, a filter of Argentinianness or La Argentinidad, you have the equivalent of Yinglish with uh, Spanish and Yiddish in Argentina. You have uh, the equivalent of the Borscht a belt a, of comedians and the Catskills in Argentina as well, a, tangos that were sang in Yiddish, all sorts of products, television shows, radio shows, perhaps less um, uh, important uh, in the long run than in the United States because you have to consider that whereas here there were millions that were arriving or at least quickly becoming in the in Argentina the numbers were far smaller. I wanted to pay tribute to that Yiddish uh, infrastructure and a Yiddish that was also my infrastructure when when coming of age in Mexico. And I wanted to do it exactly in the subtle ways that you very shrewdly pointed to, a, a, a newspaper that is in Yiddish, or two Orthodox Jews that are mixing Yiddish and Spanish all the time, or certain expressions of the end of the world that you can have something in Yiddish and then something in Hebrew, and then the, the rest in Spanish. Because that kind of promiscuity of, of the verb is, is as common there as it is here. And I think there's a lot to be said about the creativity of a crossing borders in language when the, all these terrorists are crossing borders in political terms. Absolutely. And, and I think doing uh, that kind of work in a visual medium where the, where the words can be on the page or you can see how, as, in, as you'd see on the Lower East Side or in other urban areas, languages just mix in, the, in, in, our, in our views. We, we walk by languages mixing all the time and we see it. And so it's, it feels very natural to have the languages mixing on the page in that way. And this was something that actually, in the, in I can say here, um, sometimes was a big effort, but an effort we didn't want to give up very quickly. You will see that in certain images, there are flyers on the walls that say things in Yiddish, pointing out to different items or, or making reference to a play that is taking place. Those we had to come up with. Those we had to do the research. So we could have done without them, but they, they give the little taste, the little schmaltzy side to it that we all thought was very important. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing book, um, really, really a treasure, um, and, I'm, and I really appreciate your speaking to me about it today. Uh, so Onse at 9.53 a.m. will be on display in the Yiddish Book Center's Brechner Gallery, April 29, 2012 to November 4, 2012. 
Uh, Professor Stavans will deliver a gallery talk about the exhibit on Sunday, April 29th at 11.30 a.m. as part of the Yiddish Book Center's Community Open House. Uh, so thank you so much, Professor Stavans. Um, you've been listening to White Goat Radio, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For additional interviews and conversations, please visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org audio. Our producer is Emma Morgenstern. I'm Josh Lambert. Zaymir, stark and gesund, be strong, be well, and tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.